This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. My uh, usual co-host, J. Craig Williams, is not able to be with us today. Um, I write the blog Law Sites and also Media Law, and uh, Craig, of course, writes the blog MayItPleaseTheCourt.com. Uh, well, this week marked uh, the first Monday in October and therefore the start of a new term of the Supreme Court. And uh, one of the first cases, I think the first case to be argued uh, on Monday morning was the uh, case of Altria Group versus Good. Altria is the parent company of Philip Morris Tobacco Company, and they're asking the Supreme Court to dismiss a, a class action suit brought by smokers in Maine who say they were misled into believing that low tar and light cigarettes were a healthier alternative to regular cigarettes. Stephanie Good and two other Maine residents, longtime smokers, sued under a state law that prohibits deceptive acts or practices. Uh, Philip Morris, which uh, is the largest tobacco company in the United States, uh, and uh, its its featured product is is Marlboro Lights, uh, and uh, it's under Altria Group. It argues that the Federal Trade Commission's regulation of tobacco product labeling, uh, which has allowed light and low tar claims to appear on labeling, bars lawsuits based on state advertising fraud laws. Uh, the outcome of this case could affect some. 40 other lawsuits pending around the country seeking potentially billions of dollars. There are a number of issues here to talk about, uh, and to help us sort through them, we have two of the uh, leading experts uh, with knowledge about this. Uh, First off, joining us is Dr. Jeffrey Wigand. Dr. Wigand achieved national prominence when he blew the whistle on another big tobacco company, Brown & Williamson, where he had uh, once been vice president for research and development. He had uh, come to learn of Brown & Williamson's production process of adding coumarin to pipe tobacco, which uh, increases uh, tobacco's harm to a smoker. Uh, Wigand uh, uh, left Brown and Williamson under less than uh, friendly circumstances, I guess, uh, after he tried to get the company to remove the Coumarin, um, but uh, the company refused to do that. Uh, even though uh, he had had a been under a confidentiality agreement with B&W, eventually uh, went public with his information, uh, most famously uh, appearing in a, a 60 Minutes episode uh, shortly after a Wall Street Journal article about the uh, about the case uh, and ultimately uh, appearing as a deposition witness in a Mississippi lawsuit uh, against the tobacco companies exposing the practice. Uh, His story, of course, was the uh, basis for the movie The Insider. And uh, and before we hear from Dr. Wagan, we're going to uh, play just a brief sound bite from that movie. Uh, This is a clip of uh, Ron Motley, lawyer Ron Motley, deposing Dr. Wigand and uh, objections from B&W's attorneys uh, during that deposition. So let's play that clip. 
In other words, it acts as a drug. I object to the form of question. It acts as a drug on I the body. Object to the form. It acts as a drug. Object. Were you then echoing here? Your objection's been recorded. She typed it into her little machine over there. It's on the record. So now, I'll proceed with my deposition of my witness. Does it act Dr. as a Wigan, drug? Dr. Wigan, I am instructing you not to answer that question. In accordance to the terms of the contractual obligations undertaken by you, not to disclose any information about your work at the Brown and Williamson Tobacco Company, and in accordance with the force and effect of the temporary restraining order that has been entered against you by the court in the state of Kentucky. That means you don't talk. Mr. Modley, we have rights here. Well, you got rights and lefts, ups and downs and middles. So what? You don't get to instruct anything around here. This is not North Carolina, not South Carolina, nor Kentucky. This is the sovereign state of Mississippi's proceeding. Wipe that smirk off your face! Dr. Wigan's deposition will be part of this record. And I'm going to take my witness's testimony whether the hell you like it or not! Answer the question, Doctor. Yes, it produces a physiological response which meets the definition of a drug. Um, nicotine is associated with impact, the satisfaction. It has a pharmacological effect that crosses the blood-brain barrier intact. Well, that deposition, uh, the dramatic deposition, was, was just a, a first step in uh, a number of developments, including testimony before Congress, and which uh, ultimately led to a landmark settlement against big tobacco companies that changed the way they operate and advertise. Uh, Dr. Wigan's courage through that process and in the face of threats and, and personal chaos and even possible arrest is, is now well known. Uh, and currently he spends his time and efforts on lectures around the world as an expert witness and uh, consultant on various tobacco issues and on his nonprofit organization, Smoke Free Kids Incorporated, where he concentrates his time on helping kids of all ages make better decisions and healthier choices about uh, uh, tobacco use. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jeffrey Wigan. Thank you, Bob. Uh, and joining us next uh, is a, a return guest that we're glad to have back, uh, Tony Morrow. Tony is the Supreme Court correspondent for Legal Times newspaper in Washington, D.C., and also for uh, its uh, related entities, Law.com and, and Incisive Media. Tony's a legal correspondent for the First Amendment Center. He's a bachelor's degree in political science from Rutgers University and a master's degree from the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. Uh, Tony's stories on Supreme Court law clerks won him a certificate of merit from the American Bar Association in uh, 2001 and 2005. Washingtonian magazine included Morrow on its List of the top 50 journalists in Washington. He also serves on the steering committee of the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press and the advisory board of the World Press Freedom Committee. Welcome to the show, Tony Morrow. Great to be with you. Well, uh, let's. I'd like to just start off, if we could, uh, um, Tony, with you, uh, because you were you were in the courtroom on Monday, and I, I wonder if you could kind of give us your impression of what took place there. Well, uh, yeah, it was the first case of the f first day of the term of the court, and uh, 
the uh, so everybody was kind of on, on their best behavior, like the, the first day of school. Uh, everybody was kind of in good spirits, and uh, uh, and they just kind of jumped right into this case, uh, and it was argued on behalf of the uh, of Altria by Ted Olson, the former Solicitor General, and it was his 50th argument before the court, which is quite a landmark, uh, and that no number also suggests that he has a pretty good comfort level with uh, with the justices, and I believe uh, based on that and based on the uh, the commentary and the, and the questioning that he basically had the easier time of it. He um, he argued that the the words of the statute of the federal uh, cigarette labeling law are quite clear that they uh, that the Federal Trade Commission's regulations uh, on this subject preempt uh, any regulation relating to smoking and health on the state level. Uh, and by regulation, that's generally taken to mean not just regulations in the traditional sense, but also regulation by lawsuit in state courts uh, through various, you know, uh, Plaintiffs uh, suing uh, tobacco companies and and uh, juries rendering verdicts, and that's the case uh, that that's the issue we have here. Uh, and so he Ted Olson just kept uh, going back to the basic to the words of the law and saying that uh, even though the the plaintiffs in Maine say that they're not in their lawsuit seeking to regulate smoking and health. That that's actually what they are doing, uh, even though they they frame it in terms of uh, a law in, in Maine on deceptive advertising. That it really is about smoking and health, and I think that's where the uh, I think that was he was pretty persuasive. And by the time that David Frederick uh, got up to argue on behalf of the plaintiffs, he was kind of behind the eight ball. He he also is an extremely uh, practice practitioner. He's uh, he's very good, but he just uh, I think had a hard time trying to convince or a hard time convincing the the justices that the lawsuit was not preempted by federal federal law. And of course, this is a case where the the smokers had had uh, won at at uh, at the federal circuit level in the first circuit court of appeals. Uh, and and yet you you seem to be suggesting that the the uh, the indications were from from what happened at Monday's argument that the justices were favoring the tobacco companies here. Yes, definitely. They, uh, yeah. I mean, a, a good case could be made that that uh, that this preemption uh, is not. Um, is not so clear uh, that, in fact, uh, um, in fact, over the years, the Federal Trade Commission has even said that it coexists with uh, state regulations in a number of areas, uh, and, in, and I think in this area too. So it's not. Uh, there are some uh, muddy areas to it, but but I I think just from the tenor of the argument uh, uh, that that. Ted Olson was uh, was carrying the day. Well, I want to come back to some of the legal issues in a minute, but I want to bring Dr. Wigand into the 
conversation. And Dr. Wagen, I, I want to ask you, uh, you know, from where you sit, what do you see as, as the significance of, of this case in particular, and how does it fit into uh, some of the work that you've done in this area? Well, I mean, first of all, I clearly think we have to understand that the Federal Trade Commission's measurement of tar and nicotine dates back into the 30s and that it was a method specifically developed by a scientist at American Tobacco Company, and it was later adopted by the FTC. And the numbers that the FTC reports on an annual basis are numbers that are generated by the Tobacco Institute's uh, own laboratory and accepted by the FTC. Uh, they've abandoned their own testing. The issue here is are uh, the monikers of light and ultralight and mild true monikers that convey truth. And the truth is, are they in any way safer? Are they in any way less risky? And does the consumer rely on those numbers or those monikers as they do with foodstuffs of light cheese, light beer, light wine, etc.? And when the method was adopted, it adopts it in a, in a grossly understated way of measuring a 35cc puff by a syringe for two seconds, once every minute, to a butt length of approximately 23 millimeters. Well, it doesn't take much to figure out that, that smokers don't smoke that way. And the way the industry, Doctor Wagen, can I just ask you a question? I'm sure. I mean, is this? Are you talking now about this this machine that we've read about? I'm talking that, about that, the machine measurement of the FTC method. That is the only method we have. There's either it's done by the Filtronis system, which is parallel, or a single, as they use in Europe, which is the Bogwall. Okay, and so this is this machine that that simulates the puffing of a cigarette, essentially. It is supposed to. What I think the intent of the Cigarette Labeling Act was to standardize. Well, the FTC was a standardized measurement based on what available knowledge. Unfortunately, the government's available knowledge was far inferior to the knowledge that the industry possessed for at least decades before that. The way that you get light and mild that has reduced the tar and nicotine values is by adding air holes into the filter, which essentially allow for dilution of the tar and nicotine, in exactly the position in which the smoker's hands or fingers or mouth would block those holes. So essentially when a smoker was believed to be smoking a light cigarette and deriving some perhaps health benefit or less risk benefit, they were indeed smoking more, taking deeper puffs and taking longer duration of puffs. And the industry capitalized on that by designing the cigarette such that the cigarette had what they call elasticity, the ability to expand infinitely on the manner in which it was smoked, and knowing that people who are addicted will continue to compensate. That is, they need to feed the addiction the way they feed the addiction with light cigarettes. They smoke them harder, longer, deeper puff volumes. So the, I think the current FTC method is intrinsically faulty. And you can see that the method has been changed not only in Canada, but also in the state of Massachusetts. So that it's more reflective of actual consumer use.
at issue here, I think, is, is the one that the state of Maine have the ability under the law of general applicability to regulate advertising or deceptive advertising that's applicable to everybody, whether it be to cigarettes, automotives, or uh, products, or, or so forth. Or does the FTC imply or the Federal uh, Cigarette Labeling and Advertising Act limit the industry to, to, to certain language or monikers? And it, I don't think you'll find in the, reading the regulations of either one that the word light or mild was ever allowed or imported or, or conveyed that they could use it. Well, let me just ask, let me just ask uh, Tony because I, my my sense was that this issue uh, was at least was somewhat touched on during the argument yeah. in the sense that uh, there was the the uh, issue raised as to whether the FTC uh, the FTC's allowing this method of testing to be used uh, was somewhat of a, I guess a, an implicit. Uh, Preemption, uh, or at least uh, implicitly, uh, protected the tobacco companies here in some way. Is that do I have that right, Tony? That is right, and actually, I was somewhat surprised that uh, that it did come up uh, uh, because you could look at it as a fairly technical case about the wording of the statute. But Justice Alito, Alito, yep. uh, when he uh, when the government's lawyer stood up, uh, he kind of Justice Alito sort of lit into him and just said, uh, you know, that the basically that the Federal Trade Commission had been complicit in in misleading the public because of these faulty uh, the faulty testing that that Jeff just referred to and uh, and that uh, that really uh, he, he said you've created this problem by passively approving the placement of these figures in the advertisements. And if they're misleading, then you have misled everybody who has bought those cigarettes for a very long time. Uh, it was quite a show of anger that I, that I was surprised at, but but that definitely, is, I think, becomes a sort of a background issue that if if in fact the Federal Trade Commission was lax or uh, or worse than lax in how it regulated it, then maybe the court will be would be more sympathetic to the efforts by states to to uh, pick up the slack. Yeah, but can I jump in a minute? Please Tony? do, yeah. I mean, what was the intent of the law? I mean, what was the intent of the FTC and the intent of the Federal Cigarette Labeling Advertising Act? And what was Congress trying to do? They were trying to standardize or harmonize the labeling on the packaging. That was the essence of what their intent was. And their single purpose or desire was to get is to bring about a specific consequence or belief, or belief or knowledge that can result from the people reading the label. May cause cancer, may cause birth defects, may cause heart disease, may. Very conditional and very diluted statement compared to what we know factually. And I have to say that after knowing what being in the tobacco industry for four and a, four and a half years, the knowledge base within the tobacco industry, per se, given what is known outside, is enormous. There's an enormous abyss. The, the idea of, of elasticity and compensation in cigarette design was something the industry knew clearly that the consumer would smoke more. And how do you do it? 
You do it by designing the cigarette to trick the smoker, to addict the smoker. Problem is, is that today's smokers didn't start at 25 when they read the label and clearly read the disclosure. Today's smokers start when they're 11, 12 years old. There are about 3,000 kids a day, 90% of the smokers, in this country at least, all start well before the age of 18. Only 10% of the smokers that we have in this population start smoking after the age of 18. This is truly a product that's designed and directed towards children. So they, don't, they don't care about tar numbers. They don't care about nicotine numbers, and they don't care about the labeling. And that, I think, is an important issue to it because that's the source of, of, of new recruits to the industry. And how does this case uh, relate to that on a policy level? I mean, obviously, if the Supreme Court uh, sides with the tobacco industry here, uh, the, the immediate effect is is that certain uh, lawsuits are, are going to be thrown out. But from a from a social policy point of view, is is there a broader implication to this case? What you're asking me? I mean, sure. I think there's an issue of the conflict or the tension between the Supremacy Act and the Constitution and that of the state's ability under federalism to have laws of general applicability. Does the state of Maine have the right to, to enact a law that prevents from deceptive and false advertising of any product? So it's a, a consumer protection issue. That is correct. Tony, what about you? How do you, what do you see as the, what's at stake in this case? Well, it, it certainly is, is that uh, the relationship between or, or what a state can do to protect consumers. Uh, but I think it does also fit into the larger policy questions regarding uh, tobacco. And there are other lawsuits floating around, including the, uh, uh, the massive uh, RICO or racketeering lawsuit by the uh, Justice Department against against uh, tobacco manufacturers over light cigarettes and other issues. Uh, and the judge in, in Washington, D.C., uh, you know, found against the, the tobacco companies. And that's actually under appeal of the, uh, coming up fairly soon. So there's, there's an awful lot of uh, litigation still surrounding the... Uh, Industry and of course, there's also the master settlement agreement the, uh, that was worked out with the states. So, uh, I, but I think this this will how this case will comes out will uh, will be an important indicator of the, of where the court is on whether the uh, federal regime of regulation is adequate and uh, to take care of the problem. And I think they're going to find out that find that it is, even though it has been flawed. Well, they've certainly shown a propensity towards uh, uh, towards favoring preemption, towards favoring federal preemption. That's right, and that's that's kind of the hot issue for business these days, uh, especially since state attorneys general have become so aggressive on consumer issues, uh, going after big corporations. Uh, businesses have decided they prefer one federal regime of regulation over fifty state regimes, uh, 
and uh, so they've they've been arguing strenuously in a number of areas, including medical devices. Uh, yeah, but see, medical devices go through a federal approval process. Right. I don't know of a cigarette company that's ever put their product through a federal approval process. Oh, you're right. Oh, there is no proof, and therefore I think that those are distinctly different. So if I have a medical device that goes through a FDA approval process, the FDA essentially endorses the claims and the performance and the safety and efficacy of the product. Contrary, a tobacco product has no, never been tested other than reporting tar and nicotine in any of the regimens associated with safety and efficacy, because probably wouldn't have never passed. The law, both the FTC law and the Federal Cigarette Labeling Advertising Act, do not implicitly give or state that terms such as light or mild can be used with impunity. And I think that's the issue at hand here. Is that a deceptive practice to advertise a product that the industry not only knows, that's called fraud, not only knows that is incorrect. They know clearly that a light cigarette is delivers just as much as a full flavor, if not more, depending upon the way the smoker smokes, and that's by design. To me, in my book, that's fraud. That is saying something yourself that you yourself do not believe. And they're asking the consumer to believe something that they don't themselves believe. And I think the state is assuming the, the responsibility in deceptive advertising practices. And it's, it's, a, it's a law of general applicability. It's not specific to smoking and health. It's all products. All right, we're going to take a short break right here. Uh, hold that thought. We will be back to uh, discuss this issue further after this word from our sponsors. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. Visit WestLegalWorks.com to register for the 12th Annual Electronic Discovery and Records Retention Conference being held October 21st and 22nd in New York City. For more information, visit WestLegalWorks.com. Think you need a video about your firm? You're right. Have your video produced by TV professionals and seen on Law.com, Legal Talk Network, and YouTube. And on your website, too. It's called Legal Channels. Check it out on LegalTalkNetwork.com or Law.com. Just click on Legal Channels. All right, welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi, and we would like to welcome back our guests, Dr. Jeffrey Weigand and... Tony Morrow, Supreme Court correspondent for Legal Times, and uh, I, I wanted to actually just pick up uh, again on the on the point we were just talking about. It, it, 
we actually, I should mention, we tried to uh, we contacted several of the lawyers involved in these cases about appearing on this program, and and uh, and they declined to do that. But I, I mean, it seems to be that the, the tobacco companies' argument here uh, is, I mean, their basis for invoking this sort of federal preemption is is that uh, the FTC has told us what we can say and how we can test it. And so it would be inappropriate for any state law to tell us uh, to, to hold us liable for consumer fraud, given that we relied on the federal law. Uh, I mean, is that, a, is that a fair statement of it? And is that a fair argument to make? Uh, Tony, what are your thoughts? I think that is, that is exactly it. And, and, um, and I think it is, that's an argument that's going to, Convince, uh, I think, a majority of the justices because they are sympathetic to, and especially in a global marketplace that we're in, that they're they're sympathetic to the idea that uh, companies need to have some uh, uh, predictability in, in how how they're going to be re- regulated, and that uh, uh, that having one, you know, one government looking over their shoulders is uh, is preferable to having 50 governments, uh, and, you know, assuming that Congress, this is what Congress intended in the, in the law, uh, it, it isn't always automatically that so, but, but, and, and that's where I think Jeff's point is, is good, that, uh, that maybe that Congress really wasn't intending this uh, to preempt everything, uh, yeah. but, but that's what the court's going to decide. But, the, but I don't think they argued on a smoking and health basis. No, I think the, they argued on the state has a right and a duty to protect consumers from deception, and I don't think the law, the main law, and, I, and we're only dealing with Maine because there is federalism, and each state has a right to do that, what they believe is correct in terms of protecting their consumers, and so it doesn't contradict the federal marketing regulation or the assertion that. That, that the Federal Cigarette Labeling Act has has an implied, and that's the word I'm going to use, implied, preemptive effect. And does it have it? And I think that's the, the, the stretch that I'm having difficulty with, is the inference or the implication that the federal law extends past it and does not allow the states to exercise protection of the consumer or deception of the consumer. Yeah, the only thing I mean, I agree with you, but uh, Ted Olson's point, and he even cited how many times the complaint by the smokers in Maine mentioned smoking, the word smoking I out. Mean, it's hard. That uh, you, you, in other words, that uh, even though, though it's framed as a lawsuit about deception, that it really you can't resolve that claim without getting into issues of smoking and health, and that's uh, that's where the preemption comes Well, I mean, I think one of the justices, you know, compared a Yugo to, I think, a Ford. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I was talking about cars and the performance, it'd be hard to talk, if I'm talking about tires, and not to talk about the car. And I think when you start talking about deception, the deception is in the issue of tobacco or health. I don't think they've made any health claims, even though there was discussion on health claims. I think the fundamental tort they're talking about here is the issue of deception. Right. I think that's right. Uh, we're, we're getting near the end of our time. And I, I before, be, well, that's okay. But before we do that, I, I did want to just give you, a, a Dr. Wagon, a quick opportunity to uh, tell us uh, about 
the organization you started, Smoke Free Kids, and, and how that's helping to, to spread the word about the dangers of cigarettes. Yes. Uh, I believe that the way that we – we're not very successful in treating those that are addicted. In fact, nicotine is about five to six times more addictive in dependency producing than cocaine or heroin. It's a, it's a pediatric disease. It's not an adult disease. It's manifested in adulthood. And so my belief is that if you provide children at all ages the enough knowledge to ask the right questions about their own health and make healthy decisions through critical thinking and critical analysis, that they will do the right thing. And so I spend a lot of time from kindergarten through postgraduate re-educating people from the education that the industry has sponsored that has been very misleading for decades. And so I spend a lot of time with sometimes in third grade classes and terms of and then do teaching in a medical school or law school because there is a lot of beliefs out there that are unfounded and need to be corrected. Uh, and so it, it's worldwide in scope. It, I've done it in Japan. I've done it in Scotland. Uh, work on smoke-free environments with kids. It's empowering of youth. It's having youth work with other youth depending on age differences, like high school with middle school, middle school with uh, elementary school. And actually, it's, it, it has been effective, but not the effective level that I would like to see. Um, it continues to do multiple things. Mostly, it's educational-driven. How do you create the right knowledge base to make the good decision? And I think the whole idea, is a light cigarette safer for you? And the answer is, is when you look at it closely and the data, that, and I don't take the data from the public health community. I don't need it. I just take the data from the 40 million pages of documents that were produced by the industry reluctantly that characterize this thing back into the 40s that they knew it. And that their primary target is children. And as a, as a father and as somebody who believes that our future relies and revolves around our children and their health, future health, the way the best to do it is to prevent it rather than treat it. Well, it's good work. I'm, I'm glad to hear you doing that. I, we are getting short on time. And uh, Tony Moore, I wanted to ask you uh, whether there was any, anything else that you wanted to uh, add before we conclude the discussion. Well, just that... Uh, you know the work that uh, that Jeff has done is is uh, terrific, and I wish that it would be uh, more more of a factor in how the Supreme Court de- decides things. But uh, but I think it, it the court does try to be sort of clinical about it and and just look at the statute and decide the preemption case that way. So I I uh, I think it's uh, it's going to be a a tough case, but I think uh, the, uh, for better or worse, I think the, the uh, tobacco company is going to come out of it with a win, and uh, we'll see what happens after that. And Tony, our listeners can find you at LegalTimes.com, is that right? That's right, and we also have a, a blog, the blog of Legal Times, and uh, also um, my stories turn up on Law.com uh, sooner or later pretty often. All right, thank you. And, and Dr. Wagand, I know you have a website at uh, jeffreywagand.com. That's uh, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y. That's correct. It's smokefreekids.org, O-R-G, either way. Okay. And I urge and it, it's basically for kids to go down and, it's, as Kate has learned, you, there's lots of information on there that 
try to help people educate themselves. And your website is uh, somewhat of a of a reference on on the issue, the science around tobacco and, and smoking. Uh, fascinating uh, collection yeah, of material there. So. Primarily to try to up, reinform people of the misinformation that's been propagated for decades, but it's also trying to deliver a philosophical message also. And the philosophical measure is very Kantian. And that is, do, you know, do no harm and treat others as you would like to be treated yourself, the categorical imperative. Well, on that note, I uh, appreciate the, uh, your input. Thank you. Uh, we will look forward to, I guess, well, I'm not sure we'll look forward. We will uh, at some point uh, see the decision from the Supreme Court and uh, find out how it comes down on this case. In the meantime, I'd like to thank uh, Tony Morrow and, and Jeffrey Wagan for taking the time to be with us and share their thoughts today. Uh, and uh, a note to our listeners to remember that you can Listen to this and all of our programs uh, at LegalTalkNetwork.com and also in the podcast library at iTunes. So thanks again to our guests and uh, join us again next week for another program. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.